classic Christmas traditions are all about comfort. Blazing fires, mulled drinks, vast quantities of food. It's all intended to make the darkest time of the year that little bit brighter. Much of the entertainment we enjoy over the festive period tries to do the same thing. The books, films and TV series themed around this time overflow with heartwarming adventures and happy endings. But there's one tradition that bucks this trend, the Christmas murder mystery. The depths of December inspired authors like Gladys Mitchell, Dorothy L. Sayers, Agatha Christie, Marjorie Allingham and more. Their Christmas novels and stories have vicious murders and ingenious thefts committed and investigated against the backdrop of cosy, festive fun. Reading crime fiction from the early 20th century and watching television adaptations of these books is a really popular activity at Christmas. It's nice to curl up with a good whodunit by the fire, but if we stop and think about it for a second, reading about complicated ways for people to die is not exactly the most appropriate festive activity. So why is it that we love crime at Christmas? Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. One of my absolute favourite murder mystery novels is The Nine Tailors by Dorothy L. Sayers. It was published in 1934 and sees her sleuth, Lord Peter Whimsey, investigating a theft and a murder in the Fens in East Anglia. The first few times that I read it, I was, like most readers, caught up in the detailed study of bell ringing that the plot includes. It was only by chance that I happened to open it one year on the 24th of December, and on rereading came to appreciate that it contains some extraordinary writing about the dark bleakness that accompanies the bright joy of Christmas and New Year. After that, I began to find similar passages in plenty of other detective novels from this period. Some of them address Christmas directly, such as Agatha Christie's 1938 novel Hercule Poirot's Christmas, in which a millionaire is found with his throat slit in a locked room on Christmas Eve and others more obliquely, like The Nine Tailors, and Gladys Mitchell's Groaning Spinney from 1950, in which a corpse is discovered the night before Christmas, but Mrs. Bradley's investigation continues well into the spring. The latter was actually republished in 2017, with the new title of Murder in the Snow, a Cotswold Christmas Mystery, to really tie into the festive murder mystery reading trend. The British Library Crime Classics series, a publishing project to bring lesser-known or out-of-print works back to readers, also includes its fair share of Christmas stories. It includes The Santa Claus Murder by Mavis Doriel Hay and Portrait of a Murderer, A Christmas Crime Story by Anne Meredith, as well as several festive-themed short story collections. Both of these novels feature the discovery of a murdered corpse in the midst of Christmas festivities, Indeed, in the former, the victim is actually discovered by a guest who is dressed as Father Christmas. You couldn't get a clearer example of murder intruding on cosy Christmas celebrations. But why is this such a popular trope? I think that the particular thing about Christmas is that you have such a strong contrast between the crime that occurs and the context in which it's occurring. This is Cecily Gayford, a senior commissioning editor at Profile Books. 
She is also the editor of several anthologies of festive murder mystery stories, including most recently A Very Murderous Christmas, which includes work by Marjorie Allingham, Gladys Mitchell and G.K. Chesterton. She spent a lot of time thinking about why murder is such a popular Christmassy subject. So you have a time of goodwill, a time that families are supposed to come together, that it's supposed to be about joy and generosity and safety and coziness and the contrast between the you know warm inside and the cold outside and but then you bring that darkness sort of you know underneath the Christmas tree into the Christmas dinner and you have a, a disaster an act of violence damage to the social contract right in the center of essentially you know the the most safe and warm time of the year. This contrast is a heightened version of the effect murder mysteries have all year round. We like reading them partly because they make us feel safe. In the books, the murders happen in a controlled, ordered way and are solved by clever detectives, unlike the chaotic, unresolved fears we might have in real life. At Christmas, this sense of danger resolved is all the greater. There are two ways that this works, Cecily says. There's something about the kind of mood of Christmas which means that we crave a kind of counterpoint to all that comfort and joy can feel a bit cloying and actually we fancy a bit of a sort of bit, a bit of murder and mayhem to offset it. And I think that there's something about the Christmas mood, which obviously is itself a contrast to the dark, miserable time of year that feels a bit artificial because as members of society, we know that we're, you know, that there's both light and shadow in the world. And if we insist on, everything being sort of comfort and joy, goodwill to all men, then there's a sort of a sense in which the other side of life bursts back into being. Yeah, and then I think the second reason, which is is connected, is is partly to do with why we like detective fiction in general, which is that as well as it being a good story, it's a way of working through anxieties that we have about the world and how safe it is for us. These stories are building on one of the fundamental and ancient tools of storytelling, she argues. A lot of detective writers, I think most notably Dorothy L. Sayers, drew a line between Greek tragedy and detective fiction and talked about how the crime itself is a kind of cathartic moment. It allows us to address what happens when society breaks down and we're no longer safe in places that we should be. And of course, there's something about Christmas, which is sort of particularly cosy and safe. You know, we're usually home with our families or inside brightly lit places and at a time of festivity. And so that intensifies that feeling of the kind of the worst has happened. And so we have that cathartic release of addressing what what could go wrong and then the resolution of it being solved and things being put back and returned to a sort of prelapsarian safety essentially where a detective sweeps in. Different authors use the Christmas setting to explore different aspects of human nature. There's some really great Agatha Christie stories. There's The Adventure of the Christmas Pudding which is one in which Poirot is invited to a country house and finds I think it's a ruby in the middle of a Christmas pudding and I think she you know Agatha Christie was someone who was particularly preoccupied by a certain kind of sort of middle-class, sort of safe, very ordered world. So I think she does it very well. I think Marjorie Allingham was interested in 
I suppose, sort of more the upper class kind of country house side of things. So you often have Albert Campion turning up in these slightly fraught noble families who are having to entertain a large group of country house guests, but one of them's a blackmailer and there's a disreputable uncle in, a, in another corner and a sort of heiress with a secret. So I think people addressed it in different ways. Cecily also pointed out to me that there's a slightly more mundane explanation for the profusion of Christmas murder mystery stories. Readers really like them, so publications pay authors to write them. I mean, one of the reasons why there are so many Christmas crime short stories is that it was, you know, a lot of these people were professional writers and it was a good opportunity for them to place a story. So I think it sort of partly reflects the fact that there were often special Christmas editions of magazines and it was a sort of professional opportunity as well as a creative one. In the decades since Christie, Sayers, Allingham and Mitchell were working, a new Christmas murder mystery tradition has emerged, that of the TV special. I'm going to be talking a lot more about screen adaptations of these books in the next episode, by the way. So make sure you refresh your feed on the 26th of December, because you're not going to want to miss that. And there'll be more on that after the break. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gurem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use, and I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. In the last few years, the BBC has been running new versions of Agatha Christie stories in the days between Christmas and New Year, and they've been a huge ratings hit. Why do we like watching something so dark and violent, just when we're all snuggled up on the sofa with a tin of Quality Street, though? These stories are not necessarily what you would first jump to as good family viewing. It's such a good question because 
obviously when you think about murder mysteries you're mostly thinking about kind of hysterical violent deaths which (laughs) doesn't seem like the most cozy thing off the bat but I think there's so much about them that's comforting and I think part part of why I originally found comforting about murder mysteries was kind of the way that they make a silly theatre out of death which you know a lot of us struggle with um, fear around death. This is Anna Leskovich, a cultural critic and the deputy culture editor at the New Statesman magazine. Some eagle-eared listeners might recognise her as my co-host from the now discontinued pop culture podcast Seriously, which we hosted together for two and a half years. I've known Anna for a long time now, and one of her most beloved pastimes is watching reruns of murder mystery adaptations. She does this all year round, but it's especially enjoyable near Christmas. She likes series such as the David Suchet adaptations of Agatha Christie's Poirot, but her real obsession is with series like Morse and Midsummer Murders, which, although they are modern, use many of the tropes and styles of golden age detective fiction. This, she says, is precisely what is so comforting about them. For me, I started really getting into murder mysteries when I was a student and I was watching Lewis, um, which is set in and around the university I was studying at in Oxford. And I really liked the way, A, that it made such a kind of ridiculous theatre out of death, but B, the way it kind of dramatised the absurdity of caring too much about academia because a lot of the villains would be like Oxford professors or um, students with like maniacal revenge against their tutors. And it made it so clear that to care too much about your essay deadlines was just so absurd that I found it really comforting. But I think what Lewis also has is a fairly derivative template of a mix of very familiar, either down to earth or eccentric characters, very kind of lush, grand or period settings. And then these kind of contained wild plots that you just watch over the course of one episode or maybe two episodes if they're two-parter structures of um, this kind of like melodramatic, easy to follow murder plot lines. So they're kind of that combination of familiar and wild and crazy, but all in this very kind of like safe, contained, old fashioned space. So I think it's that combination of things that makes them a quite compulsively watchable and quite comforting because that it's that familiarity without it being boring that is what makes it so comforting for me. As with detective novels, There are certain key aspects that a comforting murder mystery adaptation has to have for it to work, she says. For me, the things that they need to have are they have to have the identity of the murderer being withheld from the audience for kind of the whole of the episode. I don't like these murder mysteries like Luther and stuff where you know what's happening and you're just waiting for Luther to figure it out. Because I like I like being surprised at the end. I like being able to make my bet, to make my guess. And then you have this recurring and probably very brooding detective figure although they don't have to be a detective they can be as we know a hot pathologist or a hot vicar um, in Grantchester and other shows each episode has to explore like a, a brand new case so you could just pick it up whenever you don't have to watch the series kind of in order I think that's a big part of their accessibility and then you have to have this you know ridiculous staged grand reveal where the detective figure somehow manages to persuade the, the murderer to just explain everything they did in front of a whole room full of like people gasping. Um, you know, that's kind of key. And then I think you have to have that tone of kind of absurd death, implausible twist, 
kind of over the top acting. Like you actually don't want the acting to be too good. A wintry Christmassy setting really amplifies the comforting nature of these shows. You know, they're not really many kind of summer, glorious summer set murder mysteries. There's a lot of um, these kind of twee English villages which really come into their own at Christmas don't they these sorts of settings I do think part of that is the kind of very opulent period setting which really just lends itself to kind of the lushness of of festive decor and you know amazing coats and and I think um yeah it's just the more comforting a program the more you want to watch it at Christmas like Christmas is a time of comfort watching you also want it to be something accessible and though um, murder mysteries often aren't really suitable for tiny children they are quite family appropriate especially you know once once the kids are a bit older grown up I mean I watch a lot of midsummer murders growing up with my family it was a big thing that we would all sit around and watch as a family we'd laugh at the theme tune We'd laugh as Martine McCutcheon was bludgeoned to death with a giant wheel of cheese. There's something very accessible and family watch about those programs. So I think that's a big part of why they have such an appeal at Christmas as well. And also I think Christmas, because it's a kind of creepy time, the days are short, the nights are long, ghost stories are a big part of Christmas and murder mysteries often especially the Christmas ones come with that kind of like supernatural edge that's eventually, you know, especially something like Jonathan Creek, which is all about this kind of guy who disproves the paranormal. That's kind of his whole role as a detective. They often can try and incorporate these ideas that, you know, Poirot's seen a ghost or whatever it might be. And so I think they've just got all these little boxes that they tick, you know, period setting, tick, alignment with the supernatural tick easy to watch tick it just really means that they're kind of perfect christmas viewing this issue of the wheel of cheese is an important one because although these stories are violent we don't often actually see the gore or even the moment of killing for tales of death they can be oddly bloodless plenty of the christmas short stories i've read in cecily's anthologies and elsewhere don't even include a murder but focus rather on theft or deception My favourite of this latter kind, by the way, in case you were wondering, is The Necklace of Pearls by Dorothy L. Sayers. It's in the 1933 collection Hangman's Holiday, and you should definitely get hold of it to read on Christmas Eve. This lack of explicit violence in these murder mysteries is a key part of why they're enjoyable at Christmas, Anna argues. Although there is some signs that this is now changing. But over the last few years, there has been a trend to make these, particularly the Agatha Christie adaptations, more dark, more gritty... I guess because that's where a lot of TV has gone. But I kind of prefer them without that real darkness and violence. I love watching murder mysteries and actually they don't feel like a a place that's full of violence against women, even though obviously women are murdered. So they literally do involve violence against women. It's done in such such a way that you never feel like it's particularly depressing or realistic or likely to to happen you know it's often the the motives are not oh well he was domestically abusing his wife it's like well she had the ruby opal (laughs) or whatever (laughs) ultimately we want just enough violence so that the peril feels real and the resolution convincing but not so much that we actually feel scared ourselves that's part of what makes them enjoyable is that they're safe because it's kind of taking all the things like, you know, death, murder, sexual affairs and all these things and 
putting them in such a soft, twee and distant often context, you know, whether it's the village of midsummer or 1920s London or whatever, it put it puts it at a distance from reality and hams up everyone's motives so much that it's just that the melodramatic element takes it away from reality and it makes it quite a safe space to kind of engage with things like that without it feeling terrifying or horrible. As ever, murder mysteries take our anxieties about the world and reflect them back at us. At Christmas, a time that is meant to be all about plenty and goodwill, but which is often cold and difficult for many, they help us remember that not everything is comfort and joy, and give us a way to process our feelings about safety and violence. The firelight might be bright, but the shadows in the corner are darker than ever. This episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com, where there are also transcripts of every episode. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It book club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode. Next time on She Done It, adaptations with special guest Sarah Phelps. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revelhorwood, Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.